0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Jerry Taylor. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'll be moderating today's event. We are gathered here today to discuss green energy. For years, discussions such as these have focused primarily on the environment and the case for renewables as a means of reducing the public health costs associated with fossil fuel consumption, the risks associated with climate change, and our reliance on foreign energy. Well, I'm sure that we'll touch on those matters this afternoon, the really interesting development over the past several years has been the emergence of green energy as a means to revitalize the economy and produce jobs and industrial revitalization. Now, cynics, of course, might argue that this new argument for green energy was largely driven by the inability of advocates to convince the public to embrace green energy as fully as they might like for more traditional reasons. Hence, a new rationale was required, a rationale that presented itself with the economic meltdown of 2008. No longer must you hug a tree for green energy now, you can hug a manufacturing plant or a spouse who might work at the same. But not all of us, of course, here today are cynics. Many genuinely believe that green energy is more labor-intensive than, say, brown energy, and that green, energies, uh, green industries will certainly prove to be among the most dynamic and profitable industries in the 21st century. If Americans can manage to win the global economic race to green manufacturing, then then America will manage to remain atop the world's global economy and reap the wealth creation and jobs that would follow from that. So, to help sort out this discussion, Cato has, with the generous support of the Earhart Foundation, the Strake Foundation, and the Dart Foundation, published a book on the topic-a book titled The False Promise of Green Energy, which you can buy out front. I guess that tips our hand about where we stand on this debate, Uh, but our cover was likely blown anyway by the fact this event is being held in a place called the F.A. Hayek Auditorium. One of the co-authors of that book, Andrew Morris, will kick off today's discussion, but he will be forced to contend with an intellectual opponent, Kate Gordon, who I will introduce in due course. Andrew uh, Andrew is a professor of law and business at the University of Alabama. He is the author or co-author of more than 50 book chapters, scholarly articles, and books, including the book we're discussing today, which he co-wrote with Roger Miners, William Bogart, and Andrew Dorschach. Uh, He's also a co-author of Regulation by Litigation, published by Yale in 2008, which he co-wrote with Bruce Yandel and Andrew Dorschach. Andrew has many hats and affiliations. He is an editorial board chair of the Cayman Finance Review. He serves as research fellow at, at New York University Center for Labor and Employment Law. He is a Research Scholar for the Regulatory Studies Center at George Washington University. He is a Senior Fellow at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. He is a Senior Scholar at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He is Senior Fellow for the Institute for Energy Research, and he is a center for the third line of the Atlanta Thrashers hockey team, a club that unfortunately did not make this year's Stanley Cup playoffs. We can be with us today. (laughs) Okay, that part's not true, but I had to lighten the mood a bit. Uh, Andrew did receive his bachelor's degree from Princeton, a JD and master's of public affairs from the University of Texas at Austin, and a PhD in economics from MIT. After law school, Andy clerked for the U.S. District Judge uh, Harold Barefoot Sanders Jr. in the North District of Texas and worked for two years at Texas Rural Legal Aid in Hereford and Plainview, Texas. He has since taught at Case Western, the University of Illinois, uh, amongst other places, so please join me in welcoming Andrew Morris.
1: Thank you to Cato for sponsoring this and publishing the book and to Jerry for moderating and to Kate Gordon for uh, being here. Uh, This is an important issue and civil debate is hard to find on it, so it's great to find someone willing to do that. Energy issues are really important because energy is part of everything we do. For example, in two, a 2008 study done at AEI by Green and Mother found that 46% of the energy we use is used indirectly and embodied in products like pharmaceuticals and other forms of healthcare, food, transportation, and housing. The policy choices we make about energy thus affect not just the size and scope of government, but almost every aspect of our lives through their impact on energy costs. Green energy proponents argue that we need to provide massive federal subsidies and large unfunded mandates on to state uh, and local governments and businesses to enable us to radically transform our economy. For example, Ms. Gordon has testified recently before the Senate Subcommittee on Green Jobs and the New Economy that, quote, we are currently in the process of switching our entire energy infrastructure over from capital-intensive, risky, and often highly polluting energy sources to clean, labor-intensive, clean energy sources. It's easy to see why this vision is so attractive uh, to politicians, so attractive that they want to borrow money from our children uh, so that they can spend it now on this transformation. Clean energy sounds so much nicer than risky and highly polluting energy. Uh, Moreover, we're told that we must make this transition or risk being left behind by China. And China, we are assured by the Secretary of Commerce, is investing $12 billion a month uh, in green technology. There's a lot of problems with this view, and I want to just focus on a couple. First, if innovation in green energy is such a great thing, why isn't it happening without the government spending a lot of money and issuing a lot of rules to force people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be willing to do? Well, in fact, the historical record shows that we don't need subsidies or mandates to innovate with respect to energy. Innovation in energy is a great thing, and we've seen a lot of it in the past 150 years. For example, an improvement in the quality and quantity of gasoline refined from crude oil which was termed the octane wars occurred in the 1920s and 30s driving the price of 100 octane fuel from $25 per ounce in 1934 to 30 cents per ounce in 1935 uh, per gallon excuse me in 1935 ammonia the energy used in an ammonia plant today is 30% lower than in a plant similar plant in 1970 and that's approaching the theoretical minimum for the production of ammonia Aluminum, the energy per kilogram of smelting fell by 35% from 1960 to 200, and the total energy intensity of aluminum fell by 58%. In steel, energy per ton fell 60% from 1980 to 2006. Between 1900 and 2000, we went from transforming 21% of the energy used to useful outputs when we were engaged in heating things, to using 86% while cutting the per unit cost by more than two-thirds, I could go on and on and on, in every area we use energy, we have become more efficient, and we've become more efficient uh, without government subsidies and mandates. So the first question that I think green energy proponents need to answer is why allowing this process to continue is insufficient. In other words, why is the strategy that succeeded for more than 100 years in the United States and elsewhere need to be set aside in favor of a strategy of using the political process to choose energy technologies? And that question is hard to answer. The political strategy has been tried and it's failed miserably. In centrally planned economies from Europe to Asia to Africa, energy technologies have been chosen to the political process and have not worked. When the, where the 20th century saw a proliferation of bad designs, horrific pollution, and unreliable energy, that was mostly in cases where the political process was used to choose the technology. In our own country, the disastrous 1970s Sin fuels program is an excellent example of this. So that answer leads us to the second problem. What green energy proponents are actually proposing to do, despite the rhetoric, is to borrow money from our children and grandchildren and turn it over to politically well-connected corporations like General Electric, which managed the amazing feat of landing a CEO in the White House and paying no federal income tax uh, in the same year as his profits soared. Maybe those were not coincidental events. And Archer's Daniel Midland, which has been successfully farming the federal government for decades. Today's feeding frenzy is close at hand, but this is not something that's unique to the Obama administration. This is the bipartisan history of government-run energy policies in the United States. Now, that's not what Ms. Gordon is going to say she wants to accomplish, but it's what green energy proponents have managed to accomplish thus far. And the reason green energy programs are cl- is that they are classic examples of what Bruce Yandel termed a bootleggers and Baptist coalition in an article he wrote for Regulation Magazine back in the 1980s for Cato. A bootleggers and Baptist coalition is named after the groups that secured the Sunday closing laws that forbid liquor sales in much of the South. Bootleggers like the restriction on legal liquor sales because it closes the stores that compete with them. But they cannot persuade politicians to adopt pro-bootlegger policies aimed at raising prices for consumers without a reason that sounds good to voters. The Baptists in this implicit coalition provide the cover story. They offer a plausible reason to vote for the Sunday closing laws other than lining the pockets of the bootleggers. In the green energy debate, green energy proponents play the role of the Baptists, providing ideological cover for the looting of the current and future taxpayers by the likes of GE and ADM. Now, I don't think that the Center for American Progress, Ms. Gordon, or most of the other proponents of green energy actually intend to pour money into GE's or ADM's pockets, but that is what the record of green energy programs is, and that is what always happens when politics determines what technology we use. So let's look at one specific green energy program that almost no one thinks is a good idea today, although many people on the other side used to think it was a great program, corn-based ethanol. As virtually everyone but Congress and the the White House know by now, corn-based ethanol is a terrible fuel. It costs more than gasoline. It has lower energy content than gasoline. It causes environmental degradation as growers respond to the subsidy to produce more corn by increasing fertilizer and pesticide use and seriously overuse water resources. It's corrosive and damages engines, pipelines, and other infrastructure when it's transported, stored, and used. And it yields a tiny positive... excuse me, zero or negative net gain in energy, depending on whether we're having a good year for corn or not. And, worst of all, it dramatically raises the price of food for the poor. Now, it's a great fuel for just one thing. It makes huge amounts of money for ADM and for corn farmers in the Midwest. And it's a really costly way to do that. A Cato study found that it costs each of us $30 to put $1 in the pocket of ADM. Now, I'd be happy to give ADM a dollar if they'd let me keep the other 29 Now, no one advocated such an utter failure of an energy policy thinking that's how it was going to turn out. Rather, when corn-based ethanol was introduced, we were promised everything that we are promised today from other green energy programs. We were told that ethanol would make us energy independent, it would produce a cleaner environment, and it would produce lots of good, high-paying American jobs. But failure is what we got from the green energy crowd before, and we'll get it again if we listen to today's proponents. Let me illustrate why. In 2005, the famous maverick, Senator John McCain, voted against the entire energy bill because of the corn ethanol provisions, which he denounced. In 2006, the famous maverick, John McCain, declared energy, declared ethanol a vital energy source, having decided that the votes of Iowa corn farmers uh, were more important than principle. Leaving energy policy to politicians is simply a bad idea. I won't just pick on ethanol. It's not the only bad energy choice we've made through politics. U.S. energy policy has been about exactly the things that the green energy crowd talks about today. Energy independence, creating American jobs, and keeping up with scary foreign countries like China since at least World War II. In that time, we've seen politicians promise the 100 billion sin fuels program in the 70s would create clean transportation fuels from coal, using American workers in high-paying jobs, and they didn't produce a drop of energy. For decades, we've given subsidies to domestic oil and gas producers and favored refiners in politically well-connected districts and imposed restrictions on imported oil and gas aimed at preserving American jobs and protecting us from foreign competition. We created a system of oil import permits in the 1960s that produced the first meeting of the Oil Producers Organization that went on to become OPEC talk about counterproductive policies, raised energy prices and led to silly schemes like the infamous Mexican merry-go-round in which Mexican oil was unloaded from tankers onto trucks in Brownsville, Texas, driven back into Mexico around a traffic circle and then back into Texas so that it could technically be considered imported by land, thus qualifying it as for an exemption from the quotas. We have energy bills every few Congresses that always contain provisions designed to raise and provisions designed to lower the price of energy. This wretched legislation is unified only by its theme of doling out favors to the well-connected and its disregard for consumer welfare. We've been subsidizing the current flavor of the month, solar, for decades. Jimmy Carter promised us 33 years ago that by the year 2000, we would get 20% of our energy needs. That's 20% of our energy needs, not our electricity, from solar. We didn't. Faced with this astounding record of failure by the political system in picking technologies, green energy proponents tell us only it will be different this time. This time, the money will go for good technologies, not bad. This time, the money will not go to GE, ADM, and the politically well-connected. This time, politics will choose the right technology. I don't think there's any reason to think that our political system is better today than it was in past decades. We don't have a better breed of leaders who are less beholden to special interests. We don't have wiser leaders now who are better able to see past their fundraiser's needs. What we have is what we've always had, a flawed human beings driven by their need to be reelected, to raise campaign contributions and to do favors. They will do what they have done every time they've considered energy policy over the past 60 years. They will vote to give money to their friends and to take it away from their enemies. These are systemic problems, certainly not unique to energy, but ones that disqualify the political process from being capable of making choices about choosing technology. But the response to such criticisms is usually that this time we're in a crisis. This time is different, even as we've been told over and over, we're in a crisis. We don't have time to go through the history of bad energy predictions, so let me just give you two numbers. In 1972, the consensus prediction was that we would be using 140 billion barrels of oil per year by 2000. In fact, we were using just 26 billion. The prediction in 1970 was that we would use 1,750 billion barrels of oil between 1970 and 2000. In fact, we used less than 700 billion. We simply have a very bad record of predicting through the political process. Now let's turn to the problems with the specific technologies advocated by green energy proponents. Wind and solar energy someday may provide significant amounts of energy for our society. They do not do so today for two reasons. First, they are expensive compared to the alternatives. That's why we need subsidies. If you compare natural gas and solar panels, approximately 1,000 cubic feet of natural gas at a cost of about $4 can generate the same amount of electricity as running an average rooftop solar system for 131 days, as Jerry recently wrote in his Forbes column. Natural gas also has the advantage that it can be used at any time of day, at any time of year, can be stored until it's needed, and both the United States and the world have a lot of it. Now consider wind. Earlier this week, the Department of Interior announced the approval of the Cape Wind offshore wind farm, more than 10 years after Cape Wind first began seeking such approval. Of course, one reason it took 10 years was that uh, it was a heavily politicized approval process, with noted green energy advocate, the late Senator Ted Kennedy, fighting the project because he thought it would spoil the view from his home. That's the sort of NIMBY attitude that affects many of our Uh, these projects. Now the energy from Cape Wind that will be sold to just one utility is going to cost 1.2 billion more than the same amount of energy from conventional sources, a cost that Massachusetts ratepayers will have to pay without receiving any benefits. And despite a Massachusetts law requiring utilities to use renewables for 20 percent of their power needs by 2025, Cape Wind has found buyers only for half its output thus far. Moreover, there are what the AP referred to in its story on this, as dozens of lawsuits filed against the project by, ironically, Environmental Historic Preservation and other groups. Renewable energy is also expensive for taxpayers. The Energy Information Administration at DOE estimated in 2007, before the latest round of subsidies and spending, that subsidies for solar were $2.82 per million BTU, compared to $0.04 for coal and $0.03 for natural gas. Now, these subsidies are so generous that wind farms in Texas regularly sell their power at negative prices. That is, they pay people to take the the energy. During 63% of the days during the first half of 2008, according to the American Wind Energy Association, which hardly would be inclined to overstate this. Now, subsidies are wrong, whether they're for oil or for solar. But it's no argument for subsidies for green energy that solar and wind should get them because others have received them. The correct reaction is when we've identified a subsidy, we should eliminate it. The second major problem for renewables is that they require unacceptable infringements on the rights of others. When I lived in central Illinois, a windy spot where wind farms are sprouting, many residents have been, are seeking to zone out further wind farms near their homes because what they view as unacceptable impacts from noise pollution to shadow flicker to the deaths of birds and bats. Where my in-laws live in rural West West Central Texas, a public power authority is taking land by eminent domain to construct, at public expense, a transmission line to bring expensive wind power from the panhandle to the eco-paradise of Austin, damaging the environment with blasting that harms springs and wells and infringing on the property rights of ranchers and homeowners. Those in the path don't like it, but they are far outnumbered by the voters in Austin, and that's in Texas. All forms of energy require trade-offs. No one wants to live next to either a coal-fired power station or a wind farm, it turns out. But clothing particular forms of energy production with governmental power is wrong, whether it's coal or wind. The third reason that renewables have not taken off is that all kilowatt hours are not created equal. When, pow- when power is generated, it turns out to matter a great deal, as power storage technology is in its infancy. Renewables are greatly inferior to natural gas, coal, large hydro, and nuclear in this regard. The Texas Electric Reliability Council, or ERCOT, which has a great deal of experience with wind, rates wind power at just 8.7% of its nameplate capacity because the wind blows so infrequently. Worse, a study done by GE, which has a huge investment in the success of wind for ERCOT, which also has a huge investment in the success of wind in 2008, found that wind power peaks were anti-correlated with load across all seasons. That is, wind produces the most energy at the time we need it least which means that it simply makes the base load generation capacity less efficient by replacing capacity that we we do not need. Wind power is also inherently and unavoidably variable. That same GE study, done by a company reaping a fortune from green energy programs, found that the variation in one-minute loads were 14.9% greater with the addition of 15,000 megawatts of wind power to the ERCOT grid, compared to with just 5.4% greater with the addition of 5,000 megawatts. What that means is adding more power to the system increases the problem it creates. We can handle a little bit of wind with our system, we can't handle a lot. And wind power creates even larger variations for five-minute and one-hour periods. Adding wind thus increases not only the net load variability, but the amount and size of the extreme variations. Variation is costly to deal with. It requires more transmission lines, more costly intelligence built into the network, and more costly backup capacity from non-renewable sources. And similarly, solar energy has, has problems because it's available only when the sun shines. As a result, wind and solar systems require essentially that we build a parallel system of power generation uh, to replace them when they're not operating. Finally, green energy proponents make much of the fear that China will surpass us in renewable energy technology. I find China to be a curious role model for green energy advocates. Over the next two years, China will install over 50 gigawatts of new coal power plants each year. Its coal output has grown from 1.3 billion tons in 2000 to 2.72 billion tons last year. It's also planning to build 100 new nuclear power plants over the next 10 years. Indeed, China itself projects that its future power needs will be met by 65% from coal, 20% from hydropower, mostly from some of the most environmentally damaging large uh, hydro products like the Three Gorges Dam, 5% from nuclear, and just 7% from wind. In particular, China is planning to make the exact same kind of investment in nuclear power, which it is also planning to export, that it is making in wind. Would this be a reason to subsidize nuclear power? Very few green energy proponents would agree. Moreover, Chinese utilities, which make these decisions, are owned and operated by the Chinese government. They sell power below cost, discouraging conservation. They promote the the, uh, growth of relatively dirty industries, like steelmaking, And they operate within a system of politically determined decision making that doesn't fit with our economy. Surely, in raising the specter of China, green energy uh, advocates are not proposing we mimic all of Chinese energy policy. But they don't really explain how this part is different. This is exactly our choice between a system that chooses technologies based on which commands the support of the political elite or a system that allows decentralized market decision-making by individuals to determine the outcomes. What can we do to improve energy technology? I don't like to be completely negative, although I'm sort of a negative guy. First, we can end all subsidies for all forms of energy. Uh, Subsidizing any energy is expensive and destructive to real innovation, and so we should get rid of all the subsidies. Second, if we're concerned about encouraging technological development in energy, we have a cost effective alternative to subsidies, mandates, and regulations. We can offer prizes for technological innovations that meet specified benchmarks. For example, the X Prize has done this for spaceflight. Prizes have a great advantage over subsidies in that you don't spend any money until someone actually delivers the goods. Subsidies, on the other hand, seem to go on forever. Third, we should get the government out of the p- business of picking winners and losers. The government's record over the past 60 years in picking energy technology in the United States has been an unmitigated disaster. We should let energy consumers choose their own suppliers, we should let energy producers innovate, and we should let the marketplace choose the winners and losers. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Andy. Let me provide a uh, a necessary corrective. The calculation that you cited from my Forbes column about the relative cost of a photovoltaic uh, 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 installation versus gas I think came from an earlier draft of that op-ed. I had to scrap all that when it turned out that putting in a normal size as opposed to an artificially small size photovoltaic panel brought the uh, the uh, calculation down to about uh, uh, six days as opposed to 131, so. But I don't think that made it my Forbes column, so you must have seen an early draft. But mm. but to uh, replace that with, uh, uh, with an, an equally valid point, I think it was the EIA in the latest Energy Outlook report that uh, uh, argued that by 2016, that uh, the levelized cost of uh, photovoltaic uh, uh, solar would be about 2.4- Five times what uh, gas-fired electricity would cost at that year. They could be wrong, of course, but I'll trust those uh, those wizards at the Obama EIA to uh, at least get within uh, with a reasonable distance of the truth. Anyway, that having been said, and, and I'll take that bullet for you. Don't worry about it. Uh, let me introduce Kate Gordon. Kate is the vice president for energy policy at American Progress. Most recently, Kate was the co-director of the National Apollo Alliance, where she still serves as senior policy advisor. Kate is nationally nationally recognized for her work on the intersection of clean energy and economic development policy. She also has a long history of working on economic justice and labor issues. Before she joined the Apollo Alliance, Kate was a senior associate at the Center on Wisconsin Strategy, where she focused on corporate tax policy, progressive federalism, and rural economic development. Proud of that, Kate served as an employment and consumer rights litigator at Trial Lawyers for Public Justice in Oakland, California. She is is a primary or co-author on most of the Apollo Alliance's major reports, including uh, the Apollo Program, Make It in America, the Apollo Green Manufacturing Action Plan, Green Collar Jobs in American Cities, and CAP's New Energy Series. She is the author of several published articles on contract fairness, federal preemption, mandatory arbitration litigation, and regional economic development. And she received her undergraduate degree from Wesleyan and earned a JD and master's degree in city planning from the University of California at Berkeley. So please join me in welcoming Kate Gordon.
2: Well, thank you both so much. And, and Andrew brought up a lot of really good points that I think I'll spend a little time on right now and a little more time on when I have a chance to do the bigger response. But. Um, in particular, I think, painted a picture of the green economic movement as thinking about a transformation that happens magically overnight somehow, as if anyone is arguing that we would take the entire existing energy supply system offline and replace it with a new system immediately, as if that's possible or pragmatic or what anyone has argued. And I just want to make a few points about how that's not what has been argued, that what's really being talked about when we talk about green jobs where the green economy is a transformation, is an economic transformation over decades uh, that would look at increasing demand for energy, especially global increasing demand, that would look at taking some of our existing systems and infrastructure, making them more efficient, and that would look at diversifying our overall energy portfolio, not moving from one system to another system overnight. I think it's important to emphasize that when we say green jobs, we're not just talking about the jobs. Um, we're talking about, again, a larger economic transformation. This is really about moving toward a more efficient system, frankly, where the actual cost of the energy that we generate ends up being lower than the cost, the actual cost of the energy we currently generate with fossil fuels. It's, it's a, a misstatement to say that renewable energy and efficiency is inherently more expensive than fossil fuels. The true cost of fossil fuels has to include the impact that they have on air and water quality, what we call the externalities, the pollution externalities to those fuels, and the long-term impact on the climate. We will be looking at years, decades, generations of paying for adaptation for global warming and our carbon policies because of the impact of some of these technologies. These costs are real. The ones that we currently calculate, which mostly are the health impacts of the air and water quality. Cost in the range of $200 to $500 billion per year to the United States, and mostly in healthcare costs. If capitalized into the cost of burning coal, for instance, it would cost 37 cents a kilowatt hour to burn coal. Compare that to 16 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour for solar, 5 to 11 for wind. You end up with a system where you're actually moving to a cheaper and more stable and, and more diversified energy system than a, one currently that is inefficient and doesn't capitalize its current costs at the same time the costs of renewable energy and efficiency which are fairly new even though uh, andrews right that carter for instance advocated for solar a long time ago he advocated for solar but there were not corresponding policies to indicate any commitment of the united states toward moving toward that technology this is why for instance the solar panel was invented here at bell labs but immediately commercialized overseas now china is the largest solar producer in the world if we if we take as a commitment the move toward renewable and energy efficiency. The cost of these technologies will only come down. As we develop and commercialize the new technologies, as we bring them to scale, as we make clear that we have a long-term consistent demand for them in the United States, those costs will come down per kilowatt hour. At the same time, costs for most fossil fuel extraction will only go up. As oil, gas, and coal become harder and harder and more risky to extract, as the environmental impacts of these technologies are slowly capitalized into their cost through things like EPA reg- regulation, and as it becomes clear that there are fewer and fewer of these resources available. So we're looking at moving toward a more efficient system, which is actually ends up being lower cost. We're talking about move toward a more stable system where power generation is diversified. I am not talking about choosing a technology. We are talking about a diversified energy system where... The United States is not as subject to power disruptions and blackouts because we are not as subject to dependence on just a few current technologies, coal, petroleum, natural gas, for instance. Blackouts and disruptions, again, have a real cost. That's between about $80 and $130 billion per year to the U.S. economy, mostly to our small businesses. We're talking about a move, as, as Andrew said, toward a more competitive economy where the United States can seriously participate in what is a huge emerging global marketplace for these technologies. Other countries that have invested in the policy and programmatic commitments to clean energy have also become leaders in exporting those technologies to other country countries. Those have been good for those countries' economies. This is a $2.3 trillion global clean energy marketplace potentially by 2020. We are not serious participants in that marketplace right now. We're talking about moving toward a more diverse and inherently stronger economy where we build up industries, energy industries and sectors across regions of the country, depending on which energy resources make most sense in which region, and across a number of different occupations and and sectors, across research and development, commercialization, manufacturing, installation, operations and maintenance. We're not talking about, for instance, putting all of our eggs in the financial and real estate basket. We saw what happened there. We're talking about a much more diversified set of industries and occupations. We're looking at a more equitable economy where the poorest Americans are not stuck with the dirtiest air and water, which has astounding asthma and lung cancer impacts and, again, staggering national health care costs. We're looking at, and I think this will resonate with Cato, we're looking at a more American system where individuals actually get to choose to own the power of energy production instead of depending on big utilities to tell them where to get their power, how much it should cost. We want to make it easier to put up solar panels on your roof. We want to make it easier to do a community wind project. We want to make it easier for you to own your own production. And finally, we're looking at a more sustainable economy where we actually begin to address for once, finally, the long-term challenge of global warming. And this is something, again, we will see the cost and impact of if we don't get serious. I think, again, it's important to compare this to other transformations in U.S. history. And I've talked about this before, and Andrew cited some testimony I recently gave. But, you know, we're really talking about sort of the, the Industrial Revolution or, you know, horse-drawn carriages to engines or the high-tech revolution here. It's not about counting the jobs that moved from, for instance, the agricultural sector into the industrial sector in the Industrial Revolution. It's not about counting the blacksmiths who might have been out of work when we moved from a horse-drawn carriage system to cars. What we're talking about is an actual transformation of the economy, of the way we do business, of how efficiently we use, generate, and, and produce energy. We, did, we saw these other revolutions as transformative in American history and thought about them as ways to move forward to a more advanced age with stronger industries, stronger infrastructure, and a growing middle class. This transformation has the same potential. In each of those, we can learn lessons about what happened. What tended to happen was not, for instance, the blacksmith losing a job. What tended to happen was the blacksmith using his expertise in welding, for instance, or in shoemaking and applying it to auto mechanics. Blacksmiths were some of the first auto mechanics. Folks from the agricultural sector, as those jobs, as those, uh, that sector got more productive and mechanized, moved to the industrial sector. Women got jobs for the first time. Immigrants got jobs for the first time. These were dramatically strong economic movements in American history. Also, I think it's important to note that, and there's a section in Andrew's book that's all about the green job definition, and I think it's important to note that we never really tried to define, for instance, what we meant by a high tech worker. We thought about the high tech revolution as about productivity and efficiency and moving us toward the future. We didn't think about, is the software engineer a high-tech worker? Yes, wouldn't have existed before high-tech. Is the police officer in his squad car using a computer to look at someone's license plate a high-tech worker? Yes, using technology completely transformed his job. We didn't count those jobs at that time. We shouldn't be counting them now. We should be thinking about the larger transformation. As we invent new renewable energy systems and efficiency improvements, we will apply those to our own businesses and industrial processes and make our economy run more smoothly with fewer dollars invested in energy consumption. Our energy bills will be lower, our productivity greater as a result. In that way, greening the economy will create benefits that go beyond individual sectors and occupations included in most green job definitions. I wanted to talk for a second about the the global competition issue because it is a big issue. The worldwide clean tech sector is huge and growing. Again, 3, $2.3 trillion by 2020 looks like in the sector, and that number is probably understated. In 2012, in 2012 or 2010 alone, global venture capital for clean energy was around $230 billion. It's been a very strong set of investments, again, across industries and sectors, so not just financial sector, not just early-stage innovation, but across through manufacturing and installation which means, by definition, more people, more types of jobs, more types of skills, more exports. And it saved countries money by displacing imported energy and fuel, creating a strong export market in those countries that are taking this seriously. China is a great example. I agree, China's not the best example in terms of how much their energy demand is rising and how many, for instance, new coal plants they're thinking about putting in. But the country understands its own needs and its own demands. And because it understands those needs and demands, it is working hard to come up with a 21st energy system that is more diversified, that is more stable, that is less volatile, and that has fewer health impacts to its citizens. It's a huge issue in China. The pollution impacts are one of the things the government is thinking about the most. So China, as a result, has made investments in what we call the building blocks of innovation. They've invested $20 more in clean energy than the United States did in 2010. They're investing across sectors in R&D, in workforce training, in infrastructure, in their industrial sector. Their goal is to become a world leader in clean energy innovation and manufacturing while trying to stabilize their own energy use and economy. They're already the world's leading supplier of solar PV, as I said, invented here, and solar hot water. And their 12th five-year plan, which they just came out with, includes strong specific commitments for carbon reduction, clean technology investment, and industrial and export growth in this sector. And I think that's important that China... China's thinking about this not just as sort of one set of investments. China's thinking, how do we invest in our industries and our occupations and our workers in a way that also grows our ability to be a clean technology leader? They have a parallel environmental and economic track in the five-year plan that's very interesting to look at, something we have not tended to do here. The European Union, not a centrally controlled communist state, uh, is the second largest clean tech investor worldwide. They have a commitment to cut emissions by 25 percent by 2020. Combining that with their uh, overall commitment to 20 percent renewable energy by 2020 and 20 percent greater efficiency by 2020, they have already doubled their renewable energy share because of these commitments. They're now at 9 percent, and they're growing very, very quickly. They've directly employed about half a million people in these industries, strengthened their export markets, especially in Germany. And in Germany, this has actually led to lower costs. The Renewable Energy Act in Germany actually saved almost 3 billion euros from fossil fuel imports and also saved almost 3 billion euros in air pollution and other externality costs. In Europe, they calculate those into the cost of technologies, something we don't do here. So you can actually do the cost-benefit analysis in in an honest way. I think a key point here is that this is a global marketplace. Countries are designing policies and investments to leverage their own strengths and tap into this global market. The U.S. not acting means we are losing out on those market opportunities. Even for those of you who don't believe in global warming, this is a great growing market that we are not investing in. We are losing out. So even if you're not on the the global warming train, you should get on the clean technology uh, competitiveness train. Uh, Why? Because we'll lose out otherwise. Deutsche Bank, for instance, withdrew $8 billion of investments from the United States after the climate bill didn't pass last year because Deutsche Bank no longer saw any consistent demand in the US for clean technology products. China and the EU are starting to form strategic partnerships around clean energy research, development, production, and installation, potentially including partnerships around carbon emission reductions and the climate and the international climate negotiations. We met the other day at CAP with a business leader in Abu Dhabi, an interesting place for clean energy investments, who told us fairly frankly that the window is closing, to quote him, for the united states to be a serious player in the huge emerging marketplace for clean energy he himself and his company control about 2 billion dollars of investment in that marketplace he's not investing it here there are clear benefits to these investments this is not all speculation this is this again it's a transformation of the economy not a job counting exercise but if you want to count jobs and see economic benefits to individuals and communities you don't have to look far we have in fact made one strong concerted investment in clean energy technology at the national level in the Recovery Act, and many of our states have med- made longer-term and more sustained investments. The Recovery Act was the biggest investment in U.S. clean energy, essentially outside of our Department of Defense, I should say, which does enormous amount of investment in clean energy. Uh, the Recovery Act, we know what the impacts were because the Recovery Act legislation included a lot of transparency and accountability on exactly how the money was spent exactly how many jobs were created, exactly how many private dollars were leveraged. So we know that the Recovery Act clean tech investments will create 700,000 jobs by 2012, direct jobs reported by the companies themselves. We know that the clean energy programs leverage more private money than any other part of the bill. $7 billion invested in tax credits to renewable energy developers, loan guarantees through the Department of Energy, support to manufacturing led to $12 billion in private investments, so leveraged investments. In certain states, this is a lot higher. In Massachusetts, you got a five-to-one return, private to public, on investments. We know that the bill created physical energy infrastructure. I always think it's funny when people say, oh, you're telling me it's going to create cost $100,000 to create one job in the wind sector through your investments? No, I'm telling you it's going to cost $100,000 to create a wind farm with some jobs, putting it up and manufacturing it. In this case... The wind sector alone, we got 2,900 new wind turbines and 14 new manufacturing facilities as a result of their, those investments. 67% growth in the solar market, and the venture capital community ended up putting about 25% of all of its dollars into clean tech industries. So people are investing where they see that the investments make sense. They are investing when there's a strong commitment, they are investing when demand is clear and consistent for these technologies. We've also seen, and this is a pet issue of mine because I care a lot about manufacturing, increased demand leading to much stronger investment in domestic manufacturing. Currently, again, because of Recovery Act investments, 50% of every wind turbine is made here, doubling of domestic content, by the way, in the last five years. Almost 90% of the parts for, for instance, geothermal heat pumps are made here, and then on average about 90% of all building efficiency technologies are made here. So these are real jobs, they're real people. I'm sure they would not want to hear that their jobs were not real or that these investments had not made a difference. Nationally, green jobs grew 2.5 times faster than job growth as a whole in the last 10 years. California, you saw three times faster growth, and let me just say 25% of those were in manufacturing. In Michigan, as a whole, employment dropped by 5.4% in the last five years, not a great state example of prosperity, but increased by almost 8% in green economy sectors. And Michigan is also a great export story. Michigan saw great innovation and in export growth, is particularly in the alternative vehicle sector, as a result of higher fuel efficiency standards driving innovation, and as a result of Recovery Act investments. China now imports American electric drive cha- trains for their own Chinese electric vehicles. We've also had 30 states with renewable energy policies, that is, requirements that utility produce a certain amount of energy from renewables not choosing the renewables, but a range of renewables. We've seen that actually lower the cost of energy in those states. In Michigan, the utility contracts coming in for renewable energy now are coming in below the cost of building new coal, for instance. In Texas, wind generation has lowered utility costs of providing electricity by 2 to 4 cents a kilowatt hour. In California, Southern California, Edison did a big cost-benefit analysis across technologies, found solar to be the cheapest way to generate new power, And in Colorado, Excel, the biggest utility, found wind has saved ratepayers over $250 million since it went online. Renewable energy has also made power more predictable because it's spread out over more sources. University of Minnesota recently installed a bunch of new wind turbines. They found this allowed them to predict out their prices for 15 years. Find a fossil fuel technology that allows you to predict out prices for 15 years. The great thing about renewables you put them in the ground, and then it's fairly consistent pricing from there on. The big cost is capital and imp- capital uh, installation. Diversity in renewables also has huge benefits because it displaces fossil fuels during peak wind and solar hours. And I would just say to Andrew's point, the great thing about solar is that the sun shines only part of the day, but it happens to be the part where peak energy prices are also hitting us. It's the part of the day in the late afternoon and early evening in most places. Displacing fossil fuels during those hours allows us to use our system more efficiently. Geothermal and hydro can be used as baseload power. We at the Center for American Progress have argued for a clean energy standard that also includes natural gas and nuclear. So we are arguing for a large range of technologies to diversify our energy sources. And let me point out that even the Saudis are diversifying their energy sources, the Saudis who have, uh, you know, enormous oil reserves. Why? Two reasons. They want to extend their own fossil fuel reserves so that they can export more. And they want to make their economy less dependent on oil because a diversified economy is a stronger economy. The upshot of all this is that where we've invested, where we've made commitments, where we've shown consistent demand for these products, we have seen consistently good results for the economy and the environment. We have a choice here. We sit here with a choice facing us. Right today, I agree with Andrew that renewables and efficiency aren't a great investment in the United States. Why? The external externalities aren't calculated into their prices, so fossil fuels are artificially cheap. Subsidies to fossil fuels are in the range of about $72 billion in the last 10 years compared to 29 for renewables. Decades of subsidized infrastructure, including military protection of overseas fuel sources, have added to an imbalance in investments, and there's no consistent policy or financial commitment to these technologies. But investors are not, therefore, moving money to other parts of the American economy. As Andrew argues in his book, they are moving money to other parts of the world to invest in renewable energy technologies overseas. In contrast, in those countries overseas, in the states that have committed to a cleaner energy future, we see private sector investment, job creation across sectors and occupations, strong export markets, and strong innovation. So we have a choice between this future characterized by risk and one characterized by stability and efficiency, one where we're actually working to curb the impacts of global warming and not encourage those impacts. It's clear to me, and also the American people, who overwhelmingly support clean energy investments, which way we should go. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Kate. Uh, we'll now allow a few minutes for each of our participants to uh, reply to what they've heard, uh, for Andrew to reply to what he's heard from Kate, and for Kate to reply what she's about to hear from Andrew. And then we'll open it up for Q&A, in which I'll lead with a, a couple of questions of each speaker's, and then we'll, uh, with what time we have remaining, we'll give you an opportunity to play star for a day on our microphone. So without any further ado, let me introduce Andrew for a few minutes.
1: This stuff sounds great. I'm almost persuaded. <clears throat> we, don't, we don't have to magically transform the economy overnight. That's not what a lot of the green energy uh, literature says. That's not what the UN says in, its, uh, in the UN Development uh, Environment Development Program Report, and it's not what uh, most of the green energy proponents say, but that's, that's great. We can do this over decades, uh, however long. Uh, now, if we look at those transitions in the past, and, and, and so I think the Industrial Revolution is a great one to think about. In 1800, the United States was a poor country, primarily agriculture on the periphery of the world economy, almost completely irrelevant to everyone. In 1900, we were the largest economy in the world and the, the, uh, one of the richest. Now, how did that transformation happen? Were there some wise leaders who sat down in Washington and said, you know, the coming, the coming thing is this Industrial Revolution thing? Let's, let's put some public uh, investment in that. Let's leverage our investment. Let's go forward. No, actually, what the, the people in Washington, D.C. did was nothing. Uh, they said, well, let's protect innovation. We'll have patents. Uh, and that was about it. And what we saw was labor scarcity in the United States in the 19th century drove development. It drove Americans to innovate. Cheap intellectual property rights drove Americans to innovate. By comparison, for example, in Britain, you pretty much had to be a member of the aristocracy to be able to afford to get a patent. That's not true in America. Individuals, women, immigrants, everybody was patenting stuff here. So we had innovation driven by labor scarcity decentralized, and based on demand. Now, if uh, what I heard from uh, Kate was uh, essentially an argument for one of two policies, and it jumped back and forth. One was an argument that is almost identical to the infant industries argument that I've heard uh, since I was a student in the 1970s, that there are infant industries that deserve protection so they can grow up to be national champions. So if we just protect solar and wind and other forms of energy. I'm not clear what, which are renewables. It seems like everything but coal counts uh, now. So if we just protect everything but coal, we will uh, develop these industries. And that Germany and China and, and, and the EU, although I, I think opinions differ on whether it's a centrally controlled communist bureaucracy or not. Um, <laughs> That's one argument, and we know the infant industry's argument doesn't work because we've tried it for 200 years in different places around the world, and it never works. The infants never grow up. They just get bigger and cry louder and demand more protection. Now, the second argument I heard is essentially a mercantilist argument. It's a movement away from trade. Uh, So if we care about Uh, the U.S. being the national champion in something, then uh, we certainly would want to close off uh, and not import German technology or Chinese technology. I suspect that uh, the Germans and Chinese might also want to adopt similar things. In fact, the Chinese are somewhat mercantilist in their policies. They like to export but not to import. Um, So that's another policy we know doesn't work because we've tried it uh, before. Now, with respect to jobs, I think it is important to talk about net jobs. We do need to worry about the blacksmiths. Uh, For one thing, uh, what uh, Cap and others have talked about is they they think green technologies are better because they're more labor-intensive. And it's certainly true that building a wind farm is more labor-intensive than... operating a coal uh, power plant, although I don't know if it's more labor-intensive than building a coal power plant or a natural gas power plant. Labor intensity is a terrible way to measure whether something's a good job or not. What we want in the economy, if we want people to be wealthy, is we want jobs in which people work with a lot of capital. That's what makes them productive. So working in a power plant with a lot of capital makes you more productive than working in a field with a wrench. And that's why you get paid more. And if we want high-paying jobs... That's something we have to address by encouraging uh, jobs in which people are productive. So if we want to have a jobs policy, and I don't know that we want to have a jobs policy per se, as opposed to sort of an economic growth policy where we leave people alone to develop uh, an economy, then we ought to focus on promoting jobs in which people are very productive. Most of the green tech jobs that get talked about in reports from places like CAP and the UN and the US Conference of Mayors that we discuss in the book tend to be labor-intensive and so low-productivity jobs. Uh, One more point about the jobs uh, that we mentioned in the book. The U.S. Conference of Mayors actually tried to calculate the number of jobs in every county uh, to build support for green jobs. And they found the two places with the most green jobs in America at the time they did the calculation were New York City and Washington, D.C. I don't think those are people building... Uh, wind turbines and solar panels. I think those are bureaucrats and regulators and lawyers and consultants and janitors cleaning up after the lawyers and consultants and things like that, applying for grants. It's no surprise to me that a lot of people get hired, that, that private money gets leveraged by public spending in these areas. If you give me $100 billion, I'll hire a lot of people. We don't need people just being hired, we need to have people being productive. And that's the problem. When we let the center decide what it is and that is ultimately what uh, Ms. Gordon is talking about. We're letting the center decide which technologies. I understand that a diverse environment must be better. A diverse system of energy production must be better. If it is indeed better, people will do it. Uh, people are not stupid with respect to energy. We've become more efficient, more effective, and we have diversified our energy sources over the last 150 years. And we will continue to do so without guidance from Washington. What happens in Washington is all about rewarding the friends of the politicians. And that's what we have to worry about. Thanks.
0: KATE, YOU HAVE A BIT OF TIME TO DISCUSS WHY YOU DISAGREE.
2: <laughs> GREAT, UM, THANK YOU, ANDREW. UH, COUPLE THINGS, AND SOME OF THESE ARE FROM YOUR FIRST STATEMENT AND SOME OF THEM ARE FROM THE SECOND, BUT I'LL JUST GO THROUGH THEM QUICKLY. SO, YOU ENDED WITH THIS, SO I'LL START WITH IT, if, IF INNOVATION, IF THIS IS also GREAT, WHY AREN'T PEOPLE INVESTING IN IT NOW? WELL, THEY ARE INVESTING IN IT, IN THE PLACES WHERE THEY HAVE A SLIGHTLY MORE EQUAL PLAYING FIELD BECAUSE OF RENEWABLE ENERGY STANDARDS, BECAUSE OF IT, BECAUSE OF SOME KIND OF A STRONG commitment from the state level or internationally. They are, in fact, investing in it. Our own venture capital sector is investing in it in other countries, in fact. So it is happening. We have good examples of it happening. The problem why it's not happening across the board is because, again, you're not dealing with an equal playing field here. You're dealing with a subsidized, a a set of emerging industries uh, competing against a set of subsidized industries that have been subsidized for hundreds of years. Now, going to the point about uh, new and emerging industries that Andrew just made, he made the point that uh, the, infant, the infant industry point that deserve protection. The thing about that argument that I always am, am amused by is that people forget that, for instance, the United States was extremely involved in supporting an infant industry known as the computer or the Internet. It's just that it's the Department of Defense that tends to be involved in investing in different industries, and we tend to leave them out when we have this debate. They're somehow allowed to make decisions based on societal good, on national security, on the environment, on long-term impacts, whereas the rest of us are not. The Department of Defense, again, invented DARPA, underpinning most of the Internet. Department of Defense actually helped invent the solar panel. It's part of a NASA program back in the 70s. You can look at uh, the microwave, I mean, you can look at technology upon technology that the DOD has invested in as part of an emerging industry program for the national defense that's underpinned enormous amounts of private investment in those sectors. And in fact, right now, the, luckily for us, the Department of Defense is investing in clean energy technologies in the field with Marines using uh, mobile solar units to go uh, out in the field in Afghanistan and in installations here at home on their bases to protect their national security. So I would, in fact, argue that the United States government has had a strong role in helping emerging industries emerge. I also agree, though, with Andrew that it should step aside when those emerging industries have emerged. So we agree about the oil and gas subsidies. We probably agree more than you think about the ethanol subsidies. I agree that once we have a strong market and we've gotten to scale, the wind and solar subsidies need to go away. This, it should be an emerging industries policy, not a long-term policy. Other issues that I just wanted to bring up quickly, um, uh, Andrew brought up about uh, Carter's solar subsidies and how we did not get to 20 percent of our energy needs from solar. I would argue that had we seen, again, consistent policies, consistent support, and consistent demand for those technologies, we might have seen a much larger uptick in solar in the last 30 years or 40 years than we did. He made the argument about the One thing you didn't bring up again, Andrew, was the argument about the infringements on the rights of others of solar and wind projects and of the NIMBY arguments and of the flicker effect and other issues. I think an important point to remember is, again, we need to get our energy from somewhere. And if you gave me the choice between, as let's say as a farmer, between a wind turbine on my land for which I got a lease payment and around which I could farm, and, for instance, a coal mine which would need to be continuously mined for the coal to come out of the ground. Not just put in once, but continuously mined. I'd go for the wind farm, personally. So these are impacts on all of these technologies. You need to be fair about which impacts are which. We talked already about intermittency and about China. Let's see, the only other thing I would go to from what Andrew said... Oh, the mercantilist argument, I think that's really funny. I'm certainly not arguing that the United States closed its borders to imports from other countries. But what we've seen from other countries that have become strong export markets in clean energy is that they've developed their domestic markets first. Developing your domestic market first as a consumption market is a way to improve your own efficiencies, is a way to improve your own innovation, is a way to build up your manufacturing infrastructure, and tends to become the way you become an exporter. So these countries, China, for instance, passed a policy allowing people and giving them support for putting solar hot water on their roofs. You now see, if you, those of you who have been to China, you now see solar hot water panels on the roofs of even the most rural structures in China. That domestic demand helped drive China's solar hot water industry because China is such a huge consumer market, much like the United States. It then drove China to become a net exporter of solar hot water heaters. It's now the largest in the world. We have a similar potential here with our domestic consumption market to drive some of these industries. And actually, the building efficiency sector is a great example. That's a sector where you mostly do see domestic production, even if you're – you mostly see domestic production across the world. Most people domestically produce their own building efficiency products because of access to consumer and distance to consumer and transportation costs. So there's strong reasons for some of this to be here, certainly not arguing that it should only be here, and I'm certainly not arguing we shouldn't import it. I am, however, concerned that we will look up in 10 years or 15 years and become the world's greatest importer and consumer of clean energy products, which we've not created here, not innovated here, and not made here. There is a strong potential that that will happen. And if that does happen, I agree with Andrew. What we'll be looking at is a lot of temporary installation jobs and not a lot of jobs in R&D, not a lot of jobs in production, not a lot of jobs in manufacturing. No one wants to see that. Which is why we need to start thinking about this as a range of industries and occupations, a range of investments, and a range of policies right now so that we don't become, we don't look up one day, realize global warming has hit us, and spend the entire national budget on adaptation and on buying new clean energy technologies from China. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Kate, and thank you, Andrew. This is where I take over. Uh, I'm going to press our panelists with a few questions each, and then I will turn it over to you. Uh, I ask that uh, uh, you keep your questions like I'll keep my questions brief, and that our panelists likewise do so, so we can discuss as many lingering issues as we can with the uh, 30 minutes we have remaining. Uh, First, let me turn to you, Kate, and ask you, uh, just as a point of clarification, you said at the top of your talk, that we're talking about a transition to green energy that will take decades and decades, not something that's going to occur overnight. So, just for point of clarification, you think Al Gore is wrong when he says we should completely transform our economy to a green energy economy in ten years, right?
2: I think it's not politically or pragmatically possible to do that.
0: If it were politically possible because of a it's sweep it's or something, would think it's you support it?
2: Logically possible. Okay. What we, I mean, with. We're not only using the same amount of energy per year; we're increasing okay. our energy use per year. Right now, we're 50% dependent on coal. Natural gas is becoming a big. Player. Well, I agree with
0: you. I just want to make sure yeah, that there's we, a there's. I don't agree. I don't agree. It Alcor. can happen that quickly. Okay, and, and, and related to that, as far as the transition is concerned, I'm wondering why you have so much faith that the transition in the 21st century, assuming what occurs, will be towards renewables and not, say, methane. For instance, Jesse Ausabel, who is a very prominent uh, academic at Rochester University, has written extensively on this topic, and he believes, for reasons that I won't get into since he can provide those other reasons, maybe at some future Cato Forum, that, uh, that the energy economy is almost certainly moving more towards methane than it is towards renewables, and then he talks about why that's more promising, more economically lightly. Uh, I know people who think that he's wrong to make such predictions, just like we're wrong to make so many confident predictions about the future, but I'm curious why it is, that you're so quick to say renewables are the future and not say something like methane, which would seem to have a lot of the similar uh, economic and uh, and domestic energy advantages that renewables have?
2: I mean, I first would say I I am, I think I agree with Andrew on this, loath to put my faith in one technology. I don't think it's ever a good idea to say the future is X. But I also think that a key difference between people who make just economic arguments about energy and people who make broader sustainability arguments about energy is their I'm calculating in the environmental costs of the technologies that I'm talking about, whereas I'm not sure that folks talking purely economically are. Methane has enormous environmental costs.
0: That's a very good point. So let me, let me make that my first question to Andrew. Andrew, um, it seems to me a fair point that- uh, uh, a number of academic uh, exercises suggest that the externalities, asso- the environmental externalities in particular associated with fossil fuels are not fully internalized in the price mechanism. They're internalized to some extent because we have the Clean Air Act and other things, but not fully. And that if you were to do so, that it would, uh, it would render uh, uh, capital allocation uh, somewhat different than what we see today. Uh, I didn't hear you address that much in your comments, so I'm wondering if uh, you'd like to do so right now and tell me why Pugu was wrong.
1: Well, uh, <coughs> Waipagu is wrong it would be a long thing. I'll just say "cause" is the answer to why pagu is wrong. Um, so environmental externalities raise an interesting point, and it's certainly true that there are environmental costs of every technology, not just of uh, fossil fuels, but of all technologies have environmental costs. For example, some of the best locations for solar power turn out to be endangered species habitat in the desert. Uh, and the transmission lines and so forth necessary are are also raising environmental costs. So the answer is, if that's the problem, let's solve that problem. The problem is not solved by giving a subsidy to other forms of energy. So if we really want to address externalities from uh, thing, let's build that into the price. Let's either allow private suits to collect the damages or let's put in a tax that uh, brings it in. The one thing we know is the one sure way to get people to use less energy is to raise the price. Uh, now that happens to be very politically unpopular, so nobody ever wants to do it directly. What we're seeing instead is indirect methods of a, trying to raise the price of energy.
0: Okay, uh, Kate, to you, uh, you mentioned that uh, you claim that green tech, the green technology sector, is the exact way you put it, is huge and growing. Um, first of all, I, I think that we need to differentiate between green-there's some green technologies, there's other green technologies. If we're going to include the amount of money and capital spent to control uh, emissions from, say, coal-fired power plants, I'm not sure you really want to talk about how wonderful that is, since you want to get away from coal. But if we're just talking about green energy and the kind of things that uh, we're, we're discussing at this forum, I'm wondering uh, if you could give me some numbers about what percentage of the global GDP these investments in, say, green energy or energy efficiency might be.
2: Well, first, I should say that I actually would include the, uh, for instance, scrubber technologies, uh, things like that for coal, carbon capture and sequestration. We're, again, talking about transformation of our existing system and a transformation into a new system. So I do think we have to look at lowering the carbon impacts and raising the efficiency of the existing infrastructure. I would count those technologies. I don't actually have numbers in front of me on the global GDP. It's, it's a very small percentage of the global GDP. It's, however, a fast-growing sector of the investment mm-hmm. in global technologies and in the patents filed, for instance. It's a, much, it's a fast-growing uh, percentage of patents, new patents filed in the next last five years. So
0: when you say the, tech sec- the green tech sector is huge and growing, you mean it's a huge and growing uh, sec- uh, segment of overall allocation of venture and yeah, other
2: capital? Exactly. And do you
0: know what percentage that might be?
2: I do, and I'll find it. Okay.
0: Uh, Let me go to you, uh, Andy. Um, uh, Kate made an argument uh, for renewables based on uh, diversification of supply, and it seems to me that in uh, financial portfolio theory there's lots of uh, 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 evidence in the literature for why one might rationally allocate capital towards an investment that is not necessarily as profitable as alternative investments, but because you do get portfolio balance that it works as-it's a defensible uh, uh, allocation of capital, defensible use of resources. If that's the case, then uh, could it not be that even if renewables are more expensive than alternatives, uh, and even if it is not as a profitable uh, investment as others, that uh, these might be worthwhile investments? Now, when when I've offered this argument- uh, to uh, to some on, on Kate's side of the fence, and then I would follow up by saying, Well, if, if it's so wonderfully, uh, if it's such a good investment for diversity, why doesn't it occur from utilities anyway? Well, the argument I've heard is that public utility commissions, of course, govern a lot of what utilities can do, and they have a difficult time justifying investments in something like renewable energy on diversification grounds because the PUCs don't buy it. If the PUCs did buy it, maybe we'd see more of that investment. What do you make of that argument?
1: Well, I guess the first. would be, why don't don't the PUCs buy it? Perhaps the PUCs, which are made up of people who are responsible to to voters, generally, either directly or indirectly, uh, don't buy it because they don't think that it actually delivers benefits that are commensurate with the cost. These are people who are are closely involved in energy. Uh, Government officials still for the most part. Sorry. Government officials, though, still. PUC officials are, uh, you know, if we're going to we're going to have regulated utilities, which is a whole other discussion, whether that's <laughs> the appropriate structure for delivering electricity is through large monopoly regulated utilities. I would say that it was not. But if we're going to have those, then we are going to have to make some of those decisions. Uh, diversification might be a good idea, but you don't diversify your stock portfolio by burying some of the money in a jar in the backyard, and you don't diversify by giving it to your uh, alcoholic cousin to invest... Uh, and things. So the question is, you know, if, if we have a series of good investments, then maybe that is a good idea. Now, the question is, are these good investments? And at this point, I don't think there's a record to show that they are.
0: Uh, my final question, I'll throw it to uh, Kate before we go to the, uh, go to the rest of you. Uh, Kate, you, you offered in your rebuttal a series of examples of uh, successful uh, promotion of infant <laughs> industry by the federal government, uh, microwaves, the Internet, uh, and, and you argued that solar – likely would have indeed hit maybe 20 percent of our energy portfolio had we consistently supported it with government subsidy and promotion. Well I, I'm wondering uh, how you differentiate between uh, promotion that will produce uh, 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 successful growth from infant industries and, and how would you differentiate that between promotion of infant industries that aren't ever going anywhere? And the, the counterexample, of course, is nuclear power. As you know, since 1960 or so, we've dumped about $60 billion of federal support on nuclear power. We were told at the beginning of the 60s that it would soon be too cheap to meter, and today it's still the most expensive source of electricity on the grid, even though we've had consistent support and promotion of nuclear energy at the federal and state level for a very, very long time. And yet it is still... An industry that disappears without government support. How do you, how are why are you so certain that your your uh, your trajectory for wind and solar won't be very similar to the trajectory we've already seen for nuclear power?
2: Well, in part uh, because we've already seen the costs of wind and solar both come down, and especially in places where they've been brought to a much higher scale. Even in the United States, in the last few years, where the scale has been dramatically increased because of government investment, we've seen the costs come down. In some countries, we've actually seen the subsidies go away because the costs have come down to a point where Spain and Germany, for instance, have recalculated their subsidies for, for solar. I do, though, think that in general we need to consistently monitor and evaluate these subsidies to see how they're actually working in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. That's something we have not done with petroleum subsidies, for instance, which have been in place for almost 100 years, have no discernible impact on production numbers or on the marketplace but continue to be in place year after year. I do think, and we at CAP have argued, that there should be a reevaluation of those types of subsidies as the market changes. We've argued for a clean energy standard, for instance, and we've argued in that proposal that a clean energy standard, which we believe would help to spur demand for some of these products and therefore spur the market to respond, we've argued that within that policy should be embedded a reevaluation of the subsidies for those same technologies.
0: Mm-hmm. You, you, you hinted, just as you brought it up, you hinted that uh, you may not disagree much with- um, with Andrew and uh, presumably the Cato Institute on ethanol subsidies, uh, which suggests that you're capable of that reevaluation, has Cap publicly uh, called for a a, a you know, removal of those subsidies based we, on your reevaluation? We
2: have we are actually about to release a report on agricultural subsidies that calls for removal of some other agricultural subsidies. We are currently in the process of talking about the ethanol subsidies, but consistent with our overall feeling about subsidies is that when a technology reaches maturity. And if it's on, if it reaches maturity, and if it's competing in the market on its own terms, it should not be mm. heavily subsidized. Ethanol is an interesting issue, and we could get in a whole debate about ethanol. Um, I do, you know, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Wisconsin, and I will say that although I'm not a huge fan of how those subsidies have worked overall, the ethanol plants that have been built in the Midwest are actually sort of on the cutting edge of innovation of new, advanced. Uh, fuels, so advanced cellulosic ethanols, but also um, on the cutting edge of doing interesting stuff with biomass and moving away from petroleum-based chemicals. So those plants are an interesting infrastructure we've invested in that may actually be a bridge technology to something different, Mm -hmm. and I think that gets overlooked in the debate.
0: Well enough of me, now more of you. Uh, If you will wait for our uh, young assistants who have microphones, uh, I know you'll want to fire off your question, but just wait till the mic gets here because we are uh, streaming this over the Internet. Uh, uh, provide your name and affiliation, if you so dare, and then direct your question uh, specifically to one of our two panelists, or both, but uh, try not to give speeches since we have only about 20 minutes left, try to ask questions, and I'll also ask our panelists to answer briefly. That having been said and will likely be totally ignored, let's see some hands. We'll start down here.
3: Hi, I'm Etretani, I'm RCM. A question actually for both of you, although Kate may answer better. what what my mind what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is uh, to me energy just seems to be an input to more other value-added industries um, and it doesn't matter ultimately if it's from green or coal why so if if, say, industrial policy works in China, if it works in Germany, and they actually innovate something which will be cost-effective even before externalities, ultimately, why can't we just buy it, implement it over here, and then use it for other value-added goods? Um, I mean, we do, and um, uh, that's that's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around. Why do we need to be a leader in green energy when someone else may be able to be able to be that? We buy it, and then we do other value-added stuff with the energy.
0: I'm pretty sure that Andrew would say, yeah, me too, so in the interest of time, let's just go to Kate.
2: You know, I... Uh, I well, first you said, it, the, you know, sort of what's the difference between the types of energy, and, and I'm not sure you meant to say that, but um, obviously uh, some energy generation is cleaner than others and has less environmental impacts, and we do think at least a cap, and I certainly think that's important. Why do we need to innovate or make it here? You know, I, I... You heard in my bio, I, I'm an economic development person. That's where i that's where I come from. And from my perspective, we don't want an American economy that becomes an economy of pure consumption. If we don't have sort of if we don't continue our tradition of research and development, for instance, and in innovation and selling using our patent system to to spur innovation and selling technologies and ideas overseas, and implementing them here, if we don't continue that, we sort of lose out on this whole section of the innovation cycle. So if you don't currently, I, I actually think currently we over invest in early stage research and development and in installation. So we're doing early stage clean energy development at the labs, which are, are great, and we're doing, uh, we did a lot of work with the Recovery Act especially to install these things all around the place. What are you creating with that? not very many very high-skilled jobs in the labs and more temporary jobs that are lower skill in installation. You're not creating the jobs across commercialization, production, re-innovation that you create when you have a domestic market and when you're trying to kind of move through that innovation cycle within a country. So I think it's important to our economic growth, and I think that we just saw with the housing market collapse what happens when we do too much of our economic activity in one sector, in one fuzzy sector that doesn't have clear exports and clear um, and, and clear products. So so from my perspective, it's an economic choice uh, and one that I think we need to make. The other thing is that some of these technologies, frankly, will end up paying more if we have to import them because they just are large or their transportation costs are very big or it's just useful to have the manufacturing near the innovation and near the consumer because it makes the overall efficiency of the product lower or higher, excuse me, and the cost lower. So, I think there's a range of reasons, but, but it's more of a sort of an economic growth argument.
1: Can I say something besides me too? Okay. Um, but me too. Um, if the Germans want to pay for My our energy domain. technology, great. Uh, let Germany consume less and we'll consume more. The choice is not between a pure consumption economy and a green economy. The choice is between perhaps innovating in pharmaceuticals and innovating in energy. And if Germany ends up doing the, you know, if I'm wrong, and Germany ends up making solar panels and we end up making pharmaceuticals, I don't think we're
4: worse
0: off. Let's go here in the front.
4: Hi, I'm Marcia Wentworth from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, question for Mr. Morris. How would you reply to people who point to these successes that, that Kate talked about in the states on renewable electricity standards? Uh, it's often said that states are laboratories for the, for the feds and I wondered how you'd respond to that.
1: I guess uh, two ways. One is I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of some of the successes. Uh, I don't know that the numbers are as good as, as Kay suggested they are. But the other thing is, if we want to have a, uh, a utility regulation system that puts the choice of technology in the states, that's better than one that puts it in Washington. Uh, but let's have a marketplace. Let these technologies compete. I'm happy to let them compete. Let solar compete. Let wind compete. If they can do it on their own, as long as they don't ask me to pay for it, I'd be delighted if they turned out to be good. I'm skeptical that they will. Uh, Now, in terms of when you mean renewable energy standards, you mean requiring 20% to come from renewables. That, I think, gets into too much planning. That's too much. Let's sort of open the electric grid to anybody who wants to sell into it, and there's some technical issues about how to do that, uh, and we know how not to do it based on the California experience. Let's open the grid up to lots of suppliers and let people compete. If these technologies work, they'll win.
0: Richard, the
4: pirate economist. Kate, your argument for the subsidies, and you were talking about all the jobs that were being created. Now, it seems to me this is somewhat the equivalent of the government suddenly deciding we want the automobile manufacturers to produce white cars because they're more visible and less accidents rather than black cars. So we give a subsidy to white cars, and then somebody like you would get up there and say, my, look at all the additional jobs that have been created producing white cars. Well, ignoring the jobs lost producing black cars, but also the net job loss by having to tax the American people more to pay for the subsidy, and we know when the money goes through Washington, there is a net loss because of the inefficiencies of our tax and borrowing system. I don't see how you get around this.
3: Well,
2: so this is sort of the, the the argument that you see in a lot of uh, articles that you're sort of moving. If you put investment in one part of the economy, you're not putting it in another part, or that a job created over here is not a job created over here. Couple issues with that. Um, first, the I, I take issue with the sort of white car, black car thing, just mostly because the the, the rationale for. The promotion of these industries isn't sort of an arbitrary. We like white cars. There's an actual health and environmental benefit to most of the subsidies we're talking about. But second, we don't live in a a, a country that has a full uh, that has full employment or full productivity right now. When you create a job in one sector, you're not necessarily taking it away from another sector. We have and have had in the last few years almost 10 percent unemployment. We have about 76 percent productivity in our industrial sector, when we create a lot of these jobs, they're being created for unemployed people. So you can't make the argument, uh, realistically, that you're just moving people from one job to another job or money from one place to another place. And finally, your point about money moving through Washington, making it less efficient, many of the things we're talking about weren't, in fact, subsidies, but were, for instance, the fuel economy standards put on vehicles by the EPA. That is the fuel economy standards were the major driver of innovation in our auto sector and actually allowed Michigan to reopen a number of its auto supply factories and get engaged again in the global auto marketplace. That was a regulation that led to new efficiency standards. Our safety standards have a similar effect, not actually money flowing through Washington.
0: We'll go
4: here. Uh, Hi, I'm Bradley Garner from China International Business Magazine. I'm a Silicon Valley native living in China. And the people from the Silicon Valley who go to China saying they want to build solar panels there always say, they don't say they go there because of the industrial subsidies. They say they go there because Chinese people work for cheaper. And for a cost important uh, good like solar panels, which requires lots of labor, that's really, really important. So how would a national policy to encourage jobs in the green energy sector deal with the reality of the global supply chain and the fact that labor is cheaper elsewhere?
2: Well, let me say first that every business person I've talked to in China about their location decisions says exactly the opposite of that, that the labor costs are not one of the major factors for going to China. The factors do include things like the subsidies that China gives to companies to move to China. But one of the major reasons, for instance, supplied materials moved its its research and development uh, complex to China, was because of the availability of a skilled workforce in two-year engineering degrees. So they see China as investing in exactly the skilled workforce they need to do their research and development. That was an enormous factor for them. The second thing that they point to is the demand for their products in China. Labor costs are not usually the top thing on the agenda, and I will also say that labor costs are rising in China, so it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out. But the second point is, Again, I'm not arguing, I don't think it's realistic to argue that we should make some of everything in the United States. There are certainly technologies where the labor costs are incredibly important as an input, and probably solar PV is moving, is at the scale and the mass production that it's moving into that realm. The U.S. will not, nor will Germany, for instance, ever compete in manufacturing in the technologies where labor costs are the the most important input. We will compete in the technologies where innovation, cons- continuous innovation including process innovation are huge inputs, where access and, and uh, access and proximity to consumers are huge inputs, where consumer feedback is an input, transportation costs, and it, raw materials. There's a number of other factors that have to do with location decisions. The number one factor I have always heard from every business we've talked to, which are many, though, is the demand for the product domestically. In most technologies in the energy sector, which are large technologies, that are not that easy to move, that require advanced manufacturing, the most important question is whether there's a demand for them at the end of the day.
0: Oh, far in the back.
5: Hello, hi, my name is Davis, I'm a partner of a CP accounting firm, and, uh, um, environmental issues is not my uh, expertise, but you know, since China became a focal point here, I, I just like to have some question to ask, Katie. You know, I, originally from Southern California, I still don't know how many green jobs in, in California they, they generate from a green industry. I, I have no idea, but in China, um, I went to China for teaching in, in, in 2008 uh, on the eve of a, 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 a Olympic, and the sky was always dark. And within a few days, the sky becomes so clear, like a Florida. And I understand that because the, the central government asked uh, all the plant in a nearby province to shut down immediately. And they, they can do that right away. And, uh, and you went to different places, including uh, my hometown, Hunan province, where my parents originally from. And the river was clean, but now it's so dark. And, 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 and you put the rattlesnake in there, they, they, t- they tell me that the, the rattlesnake cannot survive those poisons in the river. So it's a life and death situation out there. And one of the friends in uh, uh, in Beijing, he invited me to, what well, you talk about, they have some solar energy power, and it's a residential compound, it's a huge compound, they install the solar energy. But they tell me that the solar energy in that compound only generates less than 1% of the electricity they need. The rest 99% still depends on traditional method to generate utility. So in China, and, and, and of course, the cost per union, per apartment, is totally different, much lower than here because, in the United States, we have a mostly a single-family home. It's very expensive to install a solar energy power out there. And uh, my question says, their situation and our situation is totally different. How we can compare that?
0: Okay, How can we, know, Kate?
2: It's, it's, well, I mean that's true. They are completely different. And China's, you know, only been an open market economy to some extent for thirty years, right? So it, it's a very different situation. I think it depends on where you compare it, um, and and, uh, and and in which in which, uh, metrics. I, in some ways, the pollution thing is incredibly important. One of the reasons I am not arguing that China is out there sort of embracing the combating global warming as their number one priority, and that's why they're moving in this direction. China is very self-interested, like most countries, and pollution is a very big issue for China, especially because of unrest in the areas that are the most polluted. They're reacting to pollution in a lot of instances. It's, um, you know, a lot of people talk about one of the reasons, European friends of mine always say, why is the United States have such a hard time admitting to global warming and these environmental issues? It's partly because we went through our own very disastrous environmental pollution period with rivers on fire and, and uh, uh, environmental accidents in the 70s made a lot of government investment as a result, Have a much cleaner air, have much cleaner air and water now. We're now not looking at those disasters on a daily basis like many people in the world are, who are in turn reacting to them. So I agree we're in a different situation from China. What I would compare though, again, is the role that China's taking to to really take a close look at its own economy, and its own strengths, and maximize those in support of a broader strategy to participate in the clean energy marketplace. I do think China's making smart strategic decisions about how to integrate its environmental policy its climate policy and its industrial policy so that the industries that it's built up over years, for instance, the, uh, the, the battery industry um, or the silicon cell industry, can be transformed into industries that can then supply this new emer- emerging market and clean technology. I think those are smart decisions. I think we should take a similar look at our own economy and see where we're strongest, not in terms of particular technologies, but in terms of the types of things that we do well. We do research and development well. We do education well. We do, uh, you know, we did do workforce training very well for a number of years. We are actually systematically disinvesting in all of these things. And the last thing point I'd make is actually some, to something Andrew said in his rebuttal. Uh, you were saying that there'd only been, I don't remember, you are saying there'd only been, uh, giving an example of government investment in, in some of these industries. Our government invests in innovation and clean technology when we invest in our education system and when we invest in our workforce. But we're unfortunately... We're systematically underinvesting across all of those. Parts of our infrastructure, places like China, are taking a strategic look and and investing heavily in those sectors of their economy. And I do think it will have an impact on us economically in the global.
0: Kate, I I was going to finish this up with the last question to Andrew, but I can't resist (laughs) continuing your your conversation. Um, I want to just jump on something that Andrew offered, and you didn't really reply to, so I'd like to get you uh, uh, on the record. A lot of what you said for the-a uh, lot of the case you've offered for renewable energy is based on environmental quality. I know not all of it, but much of it. Uh, and Andrew argued that if there are indeed uninternalized externalities associated with fossil fuel consumption, by all means internalize them either via a tax, Pugu style, or via uh, property rights and tort, say, Coast style. Uh, let's assume Coast is out of this conversation because that's probably not politically- uh, 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 reasonable uh, in the short to midterm, let's just put Gou- Pagu on the table. Uh, would you agree with Andrew that internalization via an externality tax would be a preferable way of going about this business and then letting markets sort out how to react to it? Uh, or would you, just, would you still maintain that, in principle, you'd rather have the government ordering renewable energy and subsidizing renewable energy than, say, in addressing the, the fossil fuels problem and internalizing the pollution, say, via marketplace tax?
2: Uh, no, I would agree that internalizing the externalities is the way to go. It's why we've always supported a price on carbon as the number one way to deal with many of the things I've brought up. But well, you've
0: supported both, both a price on carbon and renewable subsidies, we, which is a little bit different thing.
2: Well, the price on carbon is not politically on the table right now, which is why I haven't brought it up in this conversation in any real way. It is Absolutely, the preferable way to deal with this situation.
0: So you would drop your support for renewable energy subsidies and promotion if you got what you consider to be a reasonably appropriate internalization of uh, the externality costs associated with fossil fuel consumption.
2: I probably, I would, I would certainly consider it. I still think you've got a transition phase. I don't think it's a very long transition phase, but I still think you have a transition phase where. There's no magic bullet where you return to some kind of an even playing field by taking everything off the table and then adding in a carbon tax. That's not, you know, there are so many things that have been built up because of progress because of policies that have been on the table for a long time. For instance, the entire infrastructure of nuclear, for instance, as you as you mentioned was built in part because of subsidy or in large part because of subsidy. Entirely. That's not going to be taken off the table just because the subsidies are taken off the table. The, um, uh, the military industrial complex around oil is not going to be taken off the table if the oil subsidies are taken off the table. So there's no magic return to flat that we can have here. Um, I do think that a price on carbon is essential and is something we'll continue to fight for. But I also think that you, you have to acknowledge that that uh, there are decades and, and and in some cases, centuries of buildup of inequities among these technologies that have to be dealt with in some way. But it's a much shorter transition time if you have okay. a price in carbon.
0: Well, thank you uh, for your time, Kate, and thank you, Andy, for coming. And I hope you join me uh, in thanking them both for their presentation